Welcome to Documentary Photography Review. My name is Chris King, and together with co-presenter Rebecca Enderby, we interview documentary photographers from across the globe who explore stories local to them. Before I introduce our latest interview, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you, our listeners, for your support and your positive comments via iTunes, Twitter, LinkedIn, and the likes. They are greatly appreciated. We are still trying to find our feet, as I'm sure you appreciate, but the desire is for these podcasts to inform, inspire, and engage, and we hope we achieve that with every episode, and that everyone enjoys the journey. In this episode, we are speaking to Antonio Olmos, a passionate and socially conscious photojournalist who works on issues concerning human rights, the environment, and conflict. Born in Mexico, Antonio has lived in London since the mid-1990s. His work has been published globally, including in all broadsheet magazines in the UK, and he has also been awarded the first prize in the World Press Photography Awards. Antonio's latest project, The Landscape of Murder, documents murders over a two-year period that have taken place within the M25 motorway, which encircles London. He visited each of the sites within a few days of the murder occurring, taking an image of what was at the location at that time, from flowers to crowds of people to nothing but the remains of a police cordon. Antonio talks about his approach and his experiences during this project, including his decision to use a Google map and a blog as a means of sharing the stories behind the images, the places and victims of these murders, and Antonio's own experiences of photographing each location. The links to both can be found in the show notes. We also explore Antonio's journey as a photographer, his philosophy and approach to photography, and his belief in the importance of being analytical and allowing life experiences and explorations beyond the realm of photography to feed into and act as the foundations of your photographic practice. Antonio's project has recently been published by Dowie Lewis and is available to buy direct from the publisher, details of which will be given at the end of the podcast and are available in the show notes. All photographers, awards, institutions and the likes that are mentioned during the interview are also available in the show notes. Just go to documentaryphotoreview.com forward slash podcasts and navigate your way to Antonio's interview and you will see all the links there. Now normally we do an edited version and a full version of our interviews, but it was felt that there was nothing that could be taken away without affecting the flow of the discussion. So on this occasion, we are only making the full interview available. One last thing before we get into the interview. I would like to mention that we are back in Royal Festival Hall and while we thought we had chosen a quieter location on this occasion, and it was to begin with, it very quickly became apparent that we were mistaken, but we stuck it out nonetheless. So just consider the background noise as creating an immersive experience, enhancing the feeling that you're right there with us. Without further ado, here's our interview with Antonio Almas. Enjoy. Antonio, thank you and you're welcome can you just share with us how you started off as a photographer and how you have evolved as a photographer well um, photography was in a hobby when I was young I just sort of fell into it uh, mostly because I saw um, uh, work by Magnum photographers specifically Bruce Davidson and uh, I was so blown away that something could be beautiful and sort of politically social at the same time and I think I always wanted to be creative and I thought that would be a writer but I discovered photography and in fact I fell in love with photography before I had a camera which I think is a good way to fall in love with photography because too many people fall in love with cameras at first so I fell in love with photography and uh, the documentary photography and I looked into it and I realized that 
one of the paths to the, that kind of photography was through photojournalism, to working for newspapers. And I was living in America at the time, so I decided to become a newspaper photographer. And I studied that for a while, but didn't finish university again. So I dropped out twice. Uh, and I got a job at the Miami Herald, because I, I didn't turn there. And they liked my work so much, they just kept me on, okay. which was good. And after three years of being a newspaper photographer, which I loved, I felt that that was enough. So I quit and became a freelance photographer in Mexico City for a few years, mm -hmm. and then made my way here in London, which I thought was going to be a short stay. And 20 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> it's a very common occurrence. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, in fairness, you know, the kind of photography I like to do or want to do, you have to live in New York, London, or Paris. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's a it's the capitals of you know publishing. You know, Did so. you find Mexico City a bit li limited in that way then? Um, yeah, it was, it was very limiting. You know, um, the the great new Mexican photographers aren't photojournalists or documentary photographers. They're uh, art photographers right, yeah. with a very much of a documentary, social, political viewpoint. Mm -hmm. But they make their living. They act. They 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 live their lives as art photographers. Manuel Alvarez Bravo, uh, Graciela Tubiri, Flor Garduño. All photographers I love very much, but they're artists. You know, right, and yeah. at the end of the day, they're artists, and I f didn't want to go that route. Okay, and uh, so can you maybe elaborate a bit more on your evolution, how you how you educated yourself? You, you say that you dropped out of um, well, twice. Well, I mean, I know this is hypocritical because I actually studied photography. Right. I didn't finish it, but I, I don't. I think photography is a stupid thing to study. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, I think. Uh, uh, I'm not saying you shouldn't go to university. I think you should, but I think you should study literature, art, politics, history, philosophy. I think, in the end of the day, what makes a good photographer is having a strong anal analytical mind, mm -hmm. as opposed to having a mastery of the camera. Right. I mean, especially today, when the cameras are so easy to use and they're so excellent, yeah. the quality that's produced today—it's incredible. And it's going to—you know—the the quality quadruples every few years, which is amazing. You know? mm. So I think as, um, and also we live in an era where everybody is a photographer and everybody has amazing cameras at their disposal. Uh, so how do you uh, rise above that? Mm. I think it's with what you have to say, what stories you want to tell. Uh, and I think if you have a strong analytical mind, it's going to help you rise above the fray, for example. Right. Yeah. So I mean, I'm the kind of guy who'd never, uh, for example, I never want to be around other photographers. You know? uh, if, I if I find myself around other photographers when I'm working, I always feel like I'm in the wrong place. You know, so, so that's why I don't cover news anymore. Yeah. You know, I mean, 20 years ago when I came to London, I covered news. There was a riot in London, I would cover it. And there'd be a few dozen of us working as professionals, but outside of that, that was it. Now, the protesters have cameras, the police have cameras, mm. the photographers have cameras. There's as many photographers as protesters and police sometimes. I can't tell anybody apart, you know? But 99% of those people aren't telling stories, they're just snapping away. They're not really doing anything. Yeah. You know, so. So, because um, one of the things I was going to ask is the changes that you've seen in photography over your time. So that would be one, I suppose, the um, kind of more and more people having cameras, and the switch from film to digital. Do you embrace that? Um, well, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, the changes in photography. Um, yeah, I, I started out as a black and white photographer who made prints and developed my own film yeah. as a working photographer. When I started the Miami Herald, I had to shoot pictures. Uh, on black and white film, process the film, make prints, and then get them to uh, uh, halftone uh, you know, press, 
to get them reproduced for the newspaper, you know? And that was all your role as a photographer, uh -huh. yeah. You know? Yeah. And I, I had to edit everything with a picture editor. I never edited things independently. Everything I did was with a picture editor. So, I mean, I, I never had, like, my own say. Now, for example, for digital, I pretty much, much when I'm doing an editorial job, for example, I pretty much make my own decisions about what's gonna, what, mm. what they're going to see. And that, so it's, I'm much more independent now as a photographer yeah. in how I work. Um, the changes, but let's go, back, again, let's go back to the changes. Um, it's always been a tough business. When I started photography, I remember people telling me, you'd be, be, this is like in the 80s, people would say, you'd be better off as a plumber. <laughs> and it's probably even more true today. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, it's always been a declining business, in fairness. You know, there's never been a golden era. You know, and, you know I mean, Hello? things look much better in the 80s when I started than they look now. Right. But when I was living through the 80s, it was a really tough time. As yeah. I, I wanted to be a photographer, and everybody was telling me it's a tough business. You know, how are you going to do it? There's less work, you know? Um, so it's always been tough. So I, mean, I think you should do photography because you want to do it, or photojournalism, yeah. or whatever brand of photography you want to do. Just do it. Um, but yeah, it's changed. I've retrained myself several times. You know, I went from a black and white photographer, and then sometime after I started working, people demanded that I shoot everything on transparency and color. And then I started shooting color negative because people wanted me to scan the film and send it digitally. Mm -hmm. So I had to buy a scanner and s scan everything digitally, you know, color negatives. And then no. people didn't want prints anymore. And then people didn't want film anymore. And then they didn't want to pay for film. And then now I shoot everything digitally, you know? I mean, I stopped shooting black and white in 2009, 2010. Do you miss it? I miss it very much. But I don't, here's the thing, I don't miss color photography on film. Yeah. I think digital photography is much better as a color medium right. uh, on digital than it is on film. It's much better. You get me? You basically, all the great things about black and white, now you can do with color because of digital. Mm. But it doesn't apply for black and white. I have digital is getting close, but it's not there yet. Right. But it will be there. It will be there. I mean, there's, I mean if you want to work on film, you should, you should work on film. But there's, there, I don't think there's a technical reason why you have to work on film anymore. Right, okay. It's just an aesthetic choice as yeah. opposed to a, a technical choice. Mm. I mean, uh, the digital technology is amazing. You know. So, yeah. Can you maybe explain, uh, elaborate a bit more as to why you feel digital has, has come of age in terms of color but not black and white? Well, when I started shooting digital, uh, digital with digital cameras, you couldn't make really beautiful prints. Now there's four or five labs in London alone that make amazing digital prints real photographic prints from digital files. So uh, that's one of the reasons why I, I don't have so much trouble with digital anymore. Um, because I, I, I have a problem with, my biggest problem with digital isn't digital itself, is that people consume everything through a 72 DPI screen. Mm -hmm. And photography sh shouldn't be consumed through a you know, computer screen. It should be consumed through prints, mm -hmm. and especially prints. And uh, I mean, if I think the biggest casualty of digital technology has been printmaking. So when I do workshops, I teach or talk to colleges, universities, I always encourage student photographers to make prints. Mm. You know, because I think they're, you know, you don't get a real sense of what There's something very satisfying about having your pictures in print, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, if you're going to make a print, they cost money, so you start making good editing yeah. choices, you know, you start thinking, you know. When you put your pictures on Facebook or on, uh, you know, or on Flickr or Photoshelter, you can put a thousand pictures, mm. you know, but if you're going to make a print, you got to be really tough about what you're going to choose, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's the way it used to be. So I think print is a good way to, making prints is a good way to discipline yourself. So. To talk about um, projects, personal projects, 
how would you generally go about um, starting, initiating a personal project? I think projects, I mean, photographers call them personal projects. Personal projects means for projects that nobody wants to pay for, <laughs> basically. Uh, if, I, if I could sell every one of my ideas, I'd have no personal projects. They'd all be you know, editorial projects. Um, you should just do what interests you more than anything. Uh, you shouldn't make decisions based on whether it's going to sell or not. If you really want to do it, you should do it, and you figure out a way to do it. That's the most important thing. It's a good talent to have to learn how to sell your ideas to other people. Uh, because I think it's also a waste of time to take pictures and then put them in a shoebox or sit in somebody's computer. Uh, especially documentary, socially oriented political photography. Say, for example, you want to do a personal project on the war in the Congo. You shouldn't take pictures of people going through those kind of situations, suffering, dying, starving, if you're not going to show them to anybody else. You know, if you're going to do that kind of photography, where you're only trying to please yourself, you might as well do landscape of mountains and and flowers and puppies. You know, I think you have to you have to have a really good reason to shove a camera in somebody's face when they're going through something horrible in their life. You know, mm. and it shouldn't just be to uh, win a contest or have a portfolio picture. It should be because you want to communicate a story to people. Um, and it is hard today because there's so many good photographers who really do want to do something with their lives, but there's less and less outlets to show that kind of work. Mm -hmm. So I think um, that's one of the reasons I travel less these days because, yes, I could, I could probably round up 10,000 pounds, 5,000 pounds to go do something in Africa or the Middle East or something on my own time, but where is it going to be shown? You know? Am I just satisfi satisfying my own ego? Uh, I can do that closer to home. You know? Uh, and I can do things that are more, uh, have more impact closer to home and maybe get published easier, you know? There's like, there must be a hundred photographers right now working in Aleppo or in Syria. Yeah. But when I was doing my last project, you know, I never ran across anybody in Croydon or Tottenham or Edmonton <laughs> or South Hall. Really, I never did. No, yeah. You know? I was a lone gun. <laughs> and I live in a city of 10 million people, you know? Yeah. So I, I, in a way, that was more, much more satisfying. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So when you first started out with your, the idea, for, well, can, can you talk about how you came to the idea to do your last project, Landscape of Murder? And did you have a, a, a did you sort of have an idea that you might um, use that editorially? Or well, I have been toying with an idea about crime and police, and more specifically, uh, the economic times we're living in. And you know, they call it, I've heard the term, the age of austerity. So I was trying to play with it, how do you illustrate the age of austerity uh, photographically? And when I was exploring that, on January 1st, 2011, a woman a few blocks from where I live got murdered. And it, I found out about it by sort of an accident. And I was intrigued that it didn't make the news. And so I went to, to I didn't go there to photograph, I just went to look mm. out of curiosity. And I was surprised that I found the house, it took me a while to find the house. People in the, that, that street didn't know that somebody had been murdered and then I found a house, it was just like mine, you know, exact mm. replica of my house, 1930s, you know, semi-detached house in London. So uh, I was kind of like amazed and there was no, nothing to tell you a violent crime had happened. Mm. You know, basically a woman had been murdered by her boyfriend. And then, so I went back and photographed the house, did a landscape of the, 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 the house and the street, and then I sort of liked the idea, so I went and did, the, I just started trying to figure out when the next murder was going to happen, and it was in, Tottenham, no, Walthamstow, and again it was a woman murdered by her family, her husband and brother-in-law, and, brother and again it didn't make the news, you know, so that intrigued me, you know, 
and I realized that, and then I started doing some research, and I found out things like gang violence, gang murders, while they do happen and are a serious problem, are uh, a small part of the murders that happen in London. Domestic violence, mental illness, alcohol and drug abuse, you know, organized crime, of course. Yeah. Sometimes just you know random fights that go badly wrong. Yeah. You know. um, so just those ideas intrigued me. I thought maybe it would be a way to illustrate the times we're living in. So that's how it started, and uh, I just went with it. And now I finished it two years later. <laughs> Exhausting. And how did you find out about about uh, each case? It took me a while to figure things out. I mentioned, at first, I figured out that the Metropolitan Police has a website, and they tell you what they're doing every day. Nobody reads it, but you know, <laughs> if you did, they tell you what they're doing every day. So if there's a murder investigation, they put it up on their website right away. Then I found out people that blogged about it. Then I found a really interesting website called murdermap.com, which is about murder in London. So I started following that and got to know the writer. And then the writer ended up doing uh, uh, the afterword for my book, right. Peter Stubbley. So and then I found out you know, people blogged about their neighborhoods. you know. So there was a murder. So I started following people that you know, blogged about what was going on, people in Brixton, Croydon, Edmonton, Tottenham, you know, Shepherd's Bush. I just started following all these bloggers. Yeah. And of course, you know, if something happens in their neighborhood, they, they blog about it right away. So I just had this, I built up this network over two years where, so I could find out about a murder right after it happened. And then I would wait two or three days and then go photograph the scene. So I had this rhythm going by the time I finished it, you know. Yeah. So. But I did miss a few, in fact, in fairness. There was a few of them, even, even the, all this network, they, they missed it. Like there was a murder in, uh, in Leytonstone, a woman got murdered by her boyfriend. I didn't find out about it until a few months after it got to the courts. And I just couldn't, nobody, even the people that were blogging about it, didn't know about it. It was like incredible, you know? Yeah. Especially domestic violence cases, they really like fall under the radar, you know? Mm. So I had to go like two months after it happened to this house. So yeah, it was, it, it was, it was hard. I had to work hard at it. Yeah, yeah. So you did find lots out about of different it. resources. Yeah, yeah. And that's where the internet is vital. Um, yeah, I don't think I could have done this project no. without the internet. So that's one of the good things about digital. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the internet. It's a, it's a, it's a great resource if you know how to use it. You know. Yeah. It's a library at your fingertips, basically. And in terms of uh, your approach, like for many photographers, when they start a project, their approach kind of changes as they go along, as they kind of understand what's lying before them and how they're going to achieve what they want to achieve. Did you? maintain the same kind of approach from the start and, and the kind of the, the concept and the Very early on I decided I was going to make some ground rules about the way I was going to do the project. I was going to do it in color because mm -hmm. I love working in black and white. Even on digital I I've, I've, I've have a way of making things good, look good in black and white. But I really wanted to do it in color. I decided I wanted to do it in color. I said I wanted to do it in a landscape format, no, so no uprights. I decided I was going to shoot it mostly on a f normal lens or a slightly one-angle lens. I was going to shoot everything on a tripod. I just had all these ground rules for myself, and I pretty much kept to them. Like, mm -hmm. I shot everything at ASA 100, for example, ISO 100. Yep. I wanted beautiful color, good color, you know. Uh, that's why I use a tripod as well, so I can use high f-stops, so I can get really sharp pictures. Mm. Yeah. Um, but the biggest reason for the tripod was I wanted to make myself very visible. I wanted people to see me when I was working. I didn't want to hide behind bushes. I wanted to be very direct. I wanted people to ask me questions, talk to me about, you know. I didn't want to be like a photographer with a long lens, you know. Mm. I wanted to be very close to the situation. And I think it worked, you know. 
And I also, so I made myself visible so I couldn't hide. So I had to ask people permission. If, if somebody was grieving at the site, I had to ask them permission. And I always did. Mm -hmm. That's one of the other rules I had. If somebody was there, I'd ask for their permission. So if you see people in my photographs, I either got permission from them specifically, or if it was a family group, I would, or friends, you know, a group of friends, I would get permission from the group, you know. So uh, nobody I photographed in my pictures, I did it without their consent. Everybody right, yeah. knew I was there, you know. Yeah, so that's, I set these ground rules and I stuck to them. I think I only shot one picture without a tripod, right. and that was at Westfield uh, Shopping Mall in, in, in uh, Stratford. Mm -hmm. There was a gang fight and it was a murder. It was, and of course, you're not supposed to photograph in malls. But of right, course, yeah. if you've ever been to Westfield, it's full of tourists all taking pictures. <laughs> yeah. So they, well, they really mean they don't want professional photographers to take mm -hmm. pictures. So I had to, f the only picture I could shoot where I had to make myself invisible was that picture, which was in Westfield. So I took a picture acting like a tourist. Mm -hmm. I did my best Mexican accent. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so and it was during just near the Olympics. It was, you know, it was really crowded. Yeah. And I think even even then, like security guards spotted me. You know, so uh, they came up to me. What are you doing? I said, I am a Mexican tourist. I <laughs> love London. Ooh. You know, and they, le they left me alone. So, so I took the picture. But yeah, yeah. It was hard. Yeah. That was the only. That was probably one of the most difficult things I had to do. You know, be sneaky, and I kind of didn't like it. But there was no way I could have taken that picture, which is in the book, um, if I hadn't been a bit, you know, aloof and mm. distant. You know, you know, I couldn't be plain about it. You know, but every other picture, it was very obvious that I. You know. And in the picture in Westfield, in fairness, there's nobody identifiable, like a face or something. No. You know, if you can tell, it's a shopping mall. And how did you find people's reaction when you spoke to them about what you're doing and asked for permission? Well, some people said no, and that's uh, their right. I was surprised how many people did say yes. Mm -hmm. I always explained myself. I said, oh, hi, I'm a photographer. I'm doing this project on murder in London. Um, I told them why I was doing it, and I, I asked them that I wanted their permission if I could stay to photograph them. You know, um, and once I explained myself, people usually said yes. Mm -hmm. And most news photographers, and I'm not criticizing news photographers, they don't have time to ask, you know. And I think that's why people are suspicious of them, you know, because the long lenses feel like they're being sneaky or something. Yeah. The people that are, you know, being photographed. So I didn't want to have that situation, you know. So I, uh, so most people, once you start talking to them, I mean, I have this thing, I tell everybody this, 99% of people all around the world are really nice. Nice, And that doesn't yeah. change anywhere I go. And if you just get rid of your own inhibitions, your own fears, your own shyness, and you s go up to people and explain to them what you're doing, usually they'll say, yeah, go ahead and take my picture. You know, go ahead, it's okay. You know. So yeah, and that is no different. I had two situations, both gang-related murders, where members of the gang took, ex took a exception to me being there. Mm. And one of, one of the times it was quite, got a little bit violent toward me. But I, I still respected the decision. They didn't want me there, so I left. And I came back the next day, or like two days later. I had no problem with that, you know? So, yeah, I was going to ask, so if they, if they said no, then did you go back again when there was going to be nobody there? Well, I just came back the next day. There might be different people. There uh, might be okay, nobody yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. But I respected the people who were there. They said no, I didn't take their picture. Yeah. A couple of times I just waited. I would you know, walk away and watch the scene and wait for people to leave, and I'd come you know, take a picture. But no, I didn't. Uh, I never uh, disobeyed their wishes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And did you ever feel unsafe doing it? No, never. Never, no. Never. I mean, one of the things I, I always tell people that the project isn't meant to, to say that London's a dangerous place. No, in fact, no. it's a very safe place. It's one of the safest cities in the world for its size. I just wanted to explain that the socioeconomic factors that lead to murder or violent crime are the same everywhere, whether there's a, a city of 10,000 people 
uh, a city of 10,000 people with a high crime rate, like you know, 100 people getting murdered every day, or a place like London when, when four people get murdered every month, um, mm. the reasons are usually the same. Mm. You know, it's just that London is it's a fairer society, a richer place. It's, you know, it's, so there's less murders. You know, if it becomes more unequal, there will probably be more murders. Mm. So did the did the information that you gathered and what you kind of came to see as the, the project kind of evolved and, and you know you explored East London, North, South, West. Did it did it fit your expectations in terms of the demographic that? Well, I mean, one of the things I found out is there's still an East, you know because my project was every murder. I went to every murder site within the M25 mm -hmm. of London, within the M25 in London, and what I learned is that. Most, if you think of London as a circle, with mm -hmm. the M25 as the outer perimeter, most murders happen on the east side of the circle, south and north. So, and very few murders happen in central London, and more and more murders are happening at the edges of London, closer to the M25, you know. I think poverty is being pushed out, or, or social problems are being pushed out. It would be really interesting if your projects had been done some years ago, wouldn't it, to compare? Well, if, if I had done it 100 years ago, because yeah. I, I, I mean, I can find out everybody who was murdered 100 years ago. Mm. It must oh, yeah. would have been central London, or what we know is now like uh, Whitechapel, East London, you, mm. know, you know, near East London, you know, not East London like Welling or something, you know, but like Hackney and yeah. Tower Hamlets, you know, anything around the, the docks, you know, the Docklands, you know, near the river as well. Most murders happen very close to the river, which is very interesting, you know. Yeah. Now, uh, most murders happen, more murders happen closer to the M25, which yeah. is a, the M25 has replaced the Thames as a yeah. mode of how things come in, where the factories are now. If you want to know where the factories went, they used to be along the M25, uh, along the river, 100 years ago, they're now next to the M25. You know, all the ship, all the goods can still come in to, from all around the world. They just don't go, they don't come by river now, they come by lorry. So, yeah, so it's, it's changed, you know. But there's very few murders. I mean, there was the most, there was a murder in Oxford Street that I photographed. There was a murder in Marble Arch, and there was a murder in King's Cross. And that's as central as it got. Mm. Everything else was in the boroughs, outer boroughs. I mean, I think there was no murders in Camden. When right. I was. No, there was one, yeah, there was one, but very few, you know. The most, the place I visited, visited the most was Croydon. That's the most, you know. And I, people say, oh, you must go to Brixton a lot or Tackney. Yeah. I go, no, I didn't actually. <laughs> I went to Edmonton a lot, Tottenham, Enfield, uh, you know, Bexley Heath, mm. um, you know, Croydon. Yeah, as you know. London becomes more and more gentrified, the, as you said, the, the poverty sort of gets pushed out, doesn't it? Well, yeah. There's, I mean, there's probably, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's like a fraction of the people living in Central London there was a hundred years ago. So it's not a crowded place. I mean, people used to live in Central London, you know, literally in Soho and King's Cross and Oxford Street and, you know, Bloomsbury. Those places used to be inhabited by people and houses and flats and stuff. Nobody lives there anymore, you know? Yeah. Very few people do. Uh, they all live somewhere else, you know? Mm. And the people that do live in those places tend to be millionaires, you know? And they don't tend to get into problems normally, <laughs> you know? They so cause the problems, but they don't. They don't. They don't. They're not the victims <laughs> of the problems they cause. You know. Yeah. So. Yeah. so was this kind of interest in and where it was? Was that what um, sort of spawned the idea to do the map alongside the project, the Google Map? What was yeah, I, we I just wanted to uh, visualize it for myself where mm. I was going. Yeah, I mean, trouble with the Google Map because a computer screen is very small. It seems very still. Mm. It seems like all the murders are still happening in central London. You have to really blow the map up to realize that in fact, yeah, London's, do, a, yeah. London's a huge place. You know, it's a very big place. 
So when you look at the Google map on a small laptop screen, it still looks like there's a bunch of murders in London all over the place. Mm. But as you blow the map up, you start seeing that east-west divide. You start seeing that, I mean, most murders in West London happen in, uh, um, in Ealing, in South Hall, two very deprived places in London, you know? a few in Shepherd's Bush. But, and, and, uh, you know, but if there was a uh, murder in Kingston, for example, it was domestic violence. You know? If there was a murder in uh, Richmond, it was domestic violence. You know? I mean, but very few. You know? It's all East London, you know, the edges. Yeah, I thought the map was, was really interesting. I, I really enjoyed that part. Being able to kind of yeah, visualize it in a different way and contextualize it to where it was. And then you zoom in, and I found one to be around the corner from where I live. Like, it's really shocking, isn't it? It's sort of... You probably didn't even know about it, did you? No, no. To be fair, I might not have lived there when it happened, but, but yeah, you probably wouldn't know about it, though. And an area that you think is quite affluent, in this case. So it was really shocking. But I, I really enjoyed that part, and then linking it, and then you get to see the murder, and then link it back to the picture, and it all ties in really nicely. Yeah, I mean, it's I'm very powerful. I mean, I, I've been writing this blog, which I'm connecting to the map, and to the pictures, yeah. and to the... So I'm, I'm trying to keep it all together, but the blog has been much harder work than I expected because it's partly about my experience, mm. you know, and uh, uh, since I finished shooting the project, uh, I've been doing a book, and I found the book to be much harder work than the actual photographs. <laughs> right. It's been extremely time consuming, laying it out, getting the pictures ready, you know, you have to start from scratch because to get the photographs ready for a book, for, a book, for example, is a very different process than getting them ready for a magazine or for your own website, for example. So I had to really work on them. Um, uh, I had to make an edit, which was very painful for me, because a few pictures that I really loved didn't get in the book or as a big picture. It was just a very difficult process, you know. So uh, the blog is behind schedule. I mean, I'm hoping by sometime next year it'll be finished. I've documented my experiences to m almost all the murders that I went to. I won't do every one, I don't think, but I'll do most of them. But they'll all be linked. All the murder, all the photographs I did for the project will be on the blog site. So if yeah. you want to see where I went, and yeah. may, I'll maybe talk about what I did. What, what, how, why did you decide that you wanted to do a blog? Was that just a, a sort of personal uh, account of the project? Yeah, I wanted to contextualize the photographs in a different way. Besides, because you know, there's, you know, I mean, when I do photographs, uh, they have different processes. I do the photographs. I mean, I still tend to try, I want things to get published in newspapers, magazines. I want to have a mass audience for my photographs. Mm -hmm. And books and exhibitions don't do that. So it's very important for me to have a mass audience. So I want to get in, I got in the Guardian Weekend, for example. Yeah, so that, was, yeah. you know, I got a huge feedback for that. You know, I ended up being on the radio and being interviewed by, you know, Al Jazeera or some other stuff. You know, people, you're talking to me all the time. And I'm hoping the book will have the same thing. So I want these, you know, and I'm hoping to have an exhibition next year which I'm trying to finalize, which I want the project to have different lives. And then I want to work with some domestic violence charities to oh. s maybe use photographs from domestic violence scenes to have another life, you know? So you just constantly keep the project going in a way, you know? But first and foremost, I want it to be published in a newspaper magazine in a journalistic context, you know? Mm -hmm. I want my pictures to have a mass audience. And then as the book comes out next month, I'm gonna, it's gonna be on certain news websites, you know, like the New York Times and a few other ones, which have a have mass audience mm -hmm. as well. So yeah, I'm just, I don't, I, I don't want to make pictures for me. I mean, it would be very nice to take beautiful pictures of beautiful things and thoroughly enjoy the aesthetic experience. But there's a lot of people doing that. And maybe I'm not very good at that anyway. You know, <laughs> if you ask me to photograph a flower or a mountain, I may not be the best photographer for that, you know. <laughs> you know, I, I, have, I, 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 get, I, I get pissed off about a lot of things. I'm very political in my, my, view, my viewpoint of the, the way I look at the world. So, you know, I think about things in that context all the time, you know. I enjoy beautiful things a lot in my life, but not through the photographic experience. Mm -hmm. So, 
shamer actually. And <laughs> do you feel do you feel that the mainstream media has picked up on uh, your project to the degree that to a degree that satisfies you? Because obviously they're no, they play a role in terms no, of lack no. of exposure. I, mean, I would I, mean, I, I would like to be on you know. Yeah, I would like to get more exposure. Not for me personally. I mean, in fairness, you know, I make a living. I'm happy. Mm, but for the whole story, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, w I mean, if you ask me the point of my project, I want people to look at my pictures and say, well, "Why did that happen? What's going on?" Well, you know, because you know, photography doesn't explain anything. Okay. Photography is like it's like a window to something. Okay. And if you're intelligent, you'll start asking questions. I don't think if somebody goes to Syria and thinks that the w their photographs in Syria are going to stop the war. Well, no, I think that's a really stupid thing to think, you know. I mean, I think that a lot of photographers get into photography that way, or photojournalism. But as you get older, you realize, no, what you want to happen is that people see these horrible things, or these tragedies, or these issues, and it'll start a debate or questions and stuff. Because in the end of the day, it's, uh, it's lots of things that change things, and not one thing, you know. Yeah. I mean, if nobody had video cameras on their phones, would that gas attack in Syria have been a big deal? Probably not. So everything has a role to play, you know. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, if you ask me personally, oh, I don't like uh, the idea of everybody being a photographer. But when it comes to like the gas attack in Syria, if it, uh, it's a good thing. Yeah. You know, because you know, there's not enough photojournalists to capture all the bad things going on in the world, and the good things too. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah. You know, yeah. we do too much bad things and not enough good things. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I want my next project to be a, a sort of. Uh, I don't want to say upbeat, but I want it to be a, a different kind of subject where maybe it's not, there's no tragedies involved, you know. <laughs> it's it's thought-provoking, but not in a, a way that uh, illustrates people's suffering. How I'm going to do that, I don't know. Why do you think that there is such a failure on the part of the mainstream media to actually expose uh, all the, the majority of murders that are... Listen, I work in the mainstream media, you know. I work for The Observer, I work for The Guardian, I work for The New York Times, I used to be a staff photographer at the Miami Herald. I'm, I am the mainstream media, okay? So, you know, there's a lot of fallacies, but there's no such thing as, I mean, there's never been more information in the world. Mm -hmm. if, you're not, if you don't know about something, it's because you don't want to know about it, okay? It's, don't blame the mainstream media. Yes, the mainstream media, I'll give you an example how the mainstream media actually works. It's not because they don't want to cover things, they can't. If you're the Guardian and you have 100 pages, what are you going to put in those 100 pages, okay? And if you cover Bangladesh, there might not be enough room for the stories about Congo. And, you know, there's no wars or famines going on in South America. But there's lots of important issues going on in South America, especially about the environment, but you never see those stories. You know, it's not because the Guardian doesn't want to do them, because they have correspondence in all those places. It's yeah. just there's no space, no, even that's in that's the websites. Yeah. You know, they, uh, there's a there's a hierarchical mm. you know order to things. You know, what gets on the front page of the Guardian of the website, for example, or the New York Times. You know, they have to make choices. You know, mm. I mean, it's impossible. I might make different choices than the New York Times editors, or the Guardian editors. You know. But you know, if I want to find out what's going on in South America, I don't need the New York Times to tell me how to find I can, with a couple of keystrokes, I'm there. I can find really amazing websites by Ameri Latin American newspapers covering stories, or NGOs covering these things, you know? If I, if I care about the environment, I just gotta go to Greenpeace and they'll tell me what's going on, you know? Yeah. <laughs> no, seriously, Greenpeace has a great news. I mean, yeah. I don't think it's a mainstream media's fault. I mean, it, but probably the, the, the flip side of things is that there's too much information mm -hmm. And people don't focus on anything, mm. you know. Okay, so so that's fair enough because the, the likes of the Guardian, they're very much national and international. They're covering that, so yeah, they've got a limited space. They need to use it um, in a particular way. But what about the actual the borough newspapers? You know, the very local newspapers. Do you know if they cover 
They cover um, they they cover things locally very well. I mean, most yeah. murders that say if there's a murder in Croydon, it'll make the Croydon advertiser. But it's a small graph, you know, mm. a little paragraph. The Croydon advertiser is there to have to advertise for the local new businesses. It's it's a newspaper format. So yes, they cover things, but. If you look at the reporter's byline, you realize the same reporter doing all the stories, the school opening, the murder, <laughs> the council meeting, the car crash, the sale at Dixon's, you know, it's like, it's just one reporter working for this newspaper, mm -hmm. you know? So it's not really news, you know, it's just like little bits of information. It's not like a, a proper writer sitting there, and f you know, because say a writer does a murder story, a murder in Croydon, he's gonna wanna find out what's going on the next day mm -hmm. and how the police investigation is going. So he goes on, he covers it for days on end, mm. and, you know, and then once the crime's solved, he probably covers the, the court case and then the sentencing. So, you know, that doesn't happen in the Croydon Advertiser or all the other local papers. They don't have the resources, and not because they don't want to, they don't have the resources. Mm. I mean, er, the Guardian would like to have 3,000 staff reporters covering everything. Believe me, they would. And so would the Croydon Advertiser, and so would the Daily Mail and New York Times. It's just not, you know, not possible. And even if they had 3,000 reporters, there wouldn't be enough room to put it all in. No, yeah. yeah but certain, certain sort and of could you read stories get news prioritized. Could you read 3,000 news stories in one day? <laughs> no. It's impossible. So you, when you criticize mainstream media, and I do it too, it's because you're mad that something you want to read about isn't in your favorite newspaper. That's what you really do, you know? I mean, I say if somebody cares about Bangladesh. The Guardian doesn't cover Bangladesh. They're racist. <laughs> it's not that they're racist, it's just there's no room or not enough resources, whatever, lots of reasons. But it's not because they're racist, it's not because they don't care. Believe me, they care. But certain sort of news items do get prioritized over others, though, don't they? Or types yeah, of news? Yeah, I mean, for example, like there was an earthquake in the Philippines recently, and, and one of the reasons it didn't get covered really well in Britain was because no British people died. Mm. It's a cold-hearted fact. Yeah. Because you mentioned that domestic violence cases often go unreported. Yeah, no, that's a different issue. I mean, uh, well, it's not a different issue, it's the same thing. Uh, but I'll, I'll say that, like, like I said, Bangladesh doesn't get prioritized or the environment in Latin America doesn't get prioritized. When it comes to domestic news, domestic violence against women doesn't get prioritized. No. Okay? In fact, more women, more, there are more victims of domestic violence in Britain than there are of gang violence. Mm -hmm. But you wouldn't notify the coverage of the newspapers, no. right? Especially the right-wing papers, the tabloids, you know, especially those papers, which in fairness most people read. Uh, they're the best-selling newspapers. They tend to accentuate a certain kind of violence. And I think it's because to, to uh, reinforce certain stereotypes that those right-wing papers have, that maybe you should be afraid of black people. Yeah, yeah. Or you should be afraid of young people. We've, we've criminalized, uh, or we've made it criminal to, be a, to wear a certain fashion accessory, the hoodie. <laughs> yeah. You know? Really, I used, when I was young, I, there was jumpers with hoodies on. Yeah, I used to wear Fruit of the Loom I never, yeah, it, yeah, I think I had, you know, <laughs> my college sweatshirt had a hoodie, and I, nobody yeah. ever, like, got scared of me. I think if I did it today, in combination with my brown skin, people would be afraid of me. But <laughs> 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 when did that happen? Seriously. Yeah, you know? yeah. It, I think it's, it's certain aspects of me. I'm not saying the media is fair all the time, okay? I mean, I think the Guardian's fair, the Independent's fair. I think for the most part, the Daily Telegraph and the, 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 the Sunday Times and the Times are fair. But then you start getting to the Daily Mail, the Sun, the Daily Mirror. But you as know. you say, it's also the kind of the type of violence that they choose to focus on as well. Yeah. And do you think it's also related to um, sort of gender inequalities that people are less interested in? Believe me, if women were killing their husbands, it would be a bigger news story. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> you know, I think yeah, it's it, yeah. uh, you know, I I was at one scene where a reporter came up to me, a reporter from a certain newspaper. I'm not I'm going to criticize him, but. He did come up, come up to me and said, what's going on? Because when the murder had happened, it, it wasn't clear why it had happened. 
And when I had shown up a few days later, it became clear that it was a domestic violence. A man killed his wife. So he came at the same time, and I told him, he goes, do you know what's going on here? He goes, yeah, it was a domestic violence event. And he closed his notebook and walked away. Now, if I had told him it was a gang murder or something really weird, you know, you know I don't know, you know, he would have stayed. But to him, uh, domestic violence wasn't interesting, newsworthy. Maybe it wasn't his decision. Maybe that's just a newspaper's policy. They don't cover those kind of stories. You know, I mean, the Evening Standard, most murders get an Evening Standard, like a little graph, you know? Most of them. It's just a little graph, but if it's a gang murder, especially by young black kids, it like, it's like front page. Yeah. You know, it knocks off Syria off the front page. Yeah, you know? and it all becomes about gang culture and, Cause yeah. Because every time I ask people, ask me about uh, my project, they would, in you know, the, the average person in the street, they would ask me, oh, they all think that m murder is on the rise, but it's been going down for 100 years. And then they would talk about gangs, mm. okay? When I think in my project, it was maybe 13 related gang murders in two years, and there was maybe 60, 70 domestic violence ones. Wow. So you, but you, you yeah. that's not the way it gets covered, is no, it? No, no. You know? Can I just ask, it, when, it, when the term domestic violence is used, does that, is that tend to be, obviously it tends to be against women, but would, would it against men also be yes, called domestic violence? I think there was two or three murders that were when women killed their is husbands. Is that framed as domestic violence? Yes. Or does it sort of get a more... Child murders are domestic violence. Yeah, yeah. okay. But I mean, child murders, they, they get their own classification as well, you know. Mm. I mean, there's not as... There's, I'll give you an example. There's a fear that your children are going to be murdered. Actually, there's very few... Very few children get murdered or, mm. or kidnapped. But again, it's a huge fear everybody yeah. has. And yeah. I'm a parent. I have that fear. Where do I get that fear? You know, it's never been safer to be a kid in, in the world, especially in London, you know. Mm. I mean, I think the most dangerous thing in, the, in London is a car for a child, yeah, you know, not, not criminals, you know, not pedophiles, not criminals abducting kids and enslaving them in Morocco or something. Seriously, it's a car. Mm, no, no, completely. You ask people to stop driving their cars or make their streets uh, car free, you think they do, they go insane, yeah. you know? But that's what's killing kids today, you know? Not pedophiles, you know? Again, it's, uh, perceptions are really off. It's across the board. I've talked to people who are very wealthy, who should know better. We're very well educated. They all think murder or, or crime is on the up. It's not. Mm. So. You mentioned your book, which is the first uh, that you've published. Can you maybe elaborate a bit more upon the, the whole process? Like, did somebody approach you, or did you? No, I've always wanted to do a book. Right, I've okay. always wanted to do a book, um, but the impetus wasn't so strong in the past because I used to have a lot of outlets for my work. Right. So when I would do a project, it would get published in Britain, the States, three or four places in Europe maybe somewhere in Latin America and Japan, you know. I mean, for example, I did a project on the Newbury Bypass protests in the 90s, and that got published everywhere. Mm. I had no problem publishing it. It was like, I couldn't get it not published. It was, it was easy, you know, easy to get published. There was a lot of outlets. I mean, physically got published in magazines, newspapers. It was amazing. So I didn't think, I didn't feel like I needed the book as a way to express myself when I did work. But things have changed. I'm not sure if I did the Newbury Bypass protest, if I could have that kind of success getting it published around the world. So I started looking at things like books and exhibitions and obviously doing things like this interview, ways of getting those, the project out there. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a different landscape. In, in fairness, you know, I think there's more people viewing my work today than there ever has been. So that's good. Uh, the problem is how do I make a living out of it? That's the hard yeah. part. Yeah. See. But, in, but as far as getting my stuff out there, getting things, if I want to do something, I think I, have, I do have more outlets. I can communicate with more people. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it has its pros and cons. Mm. Yeah.
And do you think a part of that is the fact that a lot of newspaper mags are now lifestyle focused rather than you know, exploring photo essays and the likes, the Times magazine? If you picked up a 1956 issue of Life magazine, it would be a lot of celebrities, a lot of how to make your living room better, how to make a better bathroom, kitchen, and there might be a serious essay by W. Gene Smith or Cardi Brisson or Robert Kappa. It's always been that way. Right. The trouble is because of economics, when they have to get rid of something, it's been the, the serious essay, photographic essay, you know, or the, even the serious written story. You know? But I think those kind of, uh, in the entertainment value of magazines and newspapers has always been there. You know what I mean? When I pick up a newspaper, the first thing I pick up is read is a sports section. <laughs> I, I, it's not that I don't care about the world. I, you know, it should be very obvious for people who know my work that I really give a hoot about what's going on in the world. I really yeah. do care. But you know, I, maybe I don't want to start off my day with reading about Syria or the Congo. Uh, but I will read those stories. Don't get me wrong. It's just I start off slow. <laughs> yeah. You know, I want to read about what's going on in Manchester United. You know, the Champions League. You know, I want to know who's winning the Tour of France. You know, those things. You know. So I don't want. I think I, I think newspapers and magazines, editorial magazines, should be a balance of entertainment and news. I give people uh, what they want, but also give people what they need to know. You can't, you can't live in a democracy if people are, are, aren't well informed. Uh, if you, you, know, if you don't know what's going on in the world, or you don't, I don't think people know what's going on in Britain, you know? No. So uh, if you, you know, how can you make voting decisions, democratic decisions, if you're not educated about what's going on every day, you know? So, yeah, so I mean, and it's tougher. I mean, but you know, The Guardian technically has more stories on its website now than it had when it, had, it was in just a newspaper. So we should be better informed, but I think there's too much information out there sometimes. Where do you start, you know? Somebody once described to me um, the internet as a library, a huge library with 10,000 books about the Battle of Jutland in World War I. Now, most people don't know what the Battle of Jutland is, you know? And in the old days, there might be three or four books about it. But now, the internet, there's maybe 10,000 books about it. And, you know, in the old days, you knew those three books because they got published were quality books. They were good books. Now, those 10,000 books, how many of them are good? Where do you start? And same thing with photography. There's so many good photographic websites out there. You know, I don't, if I looked at all those photographic websites, I would not work. I would not take pictures, you know. I wouldn't spend time with my kids. I wouldn't do anything, you know. The thing about the old days was a magazine or newspaper had a finite amount of time to take to read it, right? And you could keep it for a while and whatever. With the internet, you can sit in a computer all day long mm -hmm. and do nothing. And that's me, who just wants to look at news websites. You know, if you start editing Netflix and what do you call it, the Angry Birds, and <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to mention born, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just like it's crazy, you know, it's uh, the whole world's at your disposal, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think people should maybe spend a couple hours on the computer every day, that's it, Max, unless you, it's work-related, mm. you know. Yeah, but ignorance is a choice nowadays. It is a choice, yeah. Because there's so much information. Well, in the West, in the West. Well, yeah, obviously yeah. you need access yeah. to the internet, which is a luxury in itself. Yeah. You know, yeah, I suppose we take that for granted here in the West. And in terms of your your body of work, have domestic violence charities picked up on it? Have they kind of... No, well, you have to watch the space. I'm still working on that. Right. <laughs> no, they, they do know about it, mm -hmm. and I think they're interested. But uh, uh, I think domestic violence charities and, well, even mental health charities have a hard time getting their message across. Mm. Yeah. I mean, one of the murders happened in Bexley Heath. Uh, a woman who had been... Uh, had killed her mother in 2005 and she was released seven years later and the day she was released or the day after she killed a, a woman in the street randomly 
a rare case of random murder yeah. for no reason. They do happen, and they tend to be mentally, mental health related. But you know, you know, why was this woman released? Maybe because there wasn't resources to keep taking care of her after seven years. You know, uh, she shouldn't have been out in the community, obviously. You know, if, I don't know. I mean, but I mean, those kind of cases happen because there was a failure in the system somewhere. You know. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, if I can help get the message across that these things happen or why they happen, you know, there's cutbacks and stuff. You know. But yeah, I mean, I think if you like, uh, if you like, explore all these murders, and you start going to the background, why they happen, yeah. who who did it, why they did it, and where they're from or what led to it, it gets, gets a bit interesting. You know? Yeah, definitely. You know, it's just. I don't believe that there's a bunch of evil people running around waiting to kill you. I mean, like 99% of people who are killed are killed by somebody they know. Mm. Yeah. Even if they're like criminals or gangs, they knew their victim or the, the victim knew their perpetrator. You know what I mean? They, 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 they know. Uh, the random violence is very rare. Yeah. You know, so. But if you explore all these issues, you start getting to other things, you know. But some people just stop at murder and violence, you know. That's it. Which is, and people explain it away by it's evil. Evil is rampant in the world, but that doesn't explain anything. You know? I don't think people are evil or angels. They're much more complex than that. You know? So I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to do the project. I want people to ask questions. You know, I think most people are not going to ask questions. Most people are going to look at my pictures and go, oh, that's very wonderful work or beautiful work or interesting work, and then move on to something else, which is the case in everything. I mean, I'm not special or more special or less special. I'm just saying that that's my hope that it creates some kind of dialogue. Of but I think having the map and then the blog and everything will make people question it more because there's so much information and context well, there. Yeah, I'm hoping it's part of the <laughs> bigger thing, you know. Yeah. Not, if, if one person gets educated, that's good enough for me. You know? I mean, I hope it's more, obviously, but I'm part of a bigger thing, you know. Unfortunately, I'm not the only photographer in the world. <laughs> in terms of your image choices, um, they're quite varied in terms of having like lots of people in them or one person or sometimes there's no people. Was that a kind of a... Not a conscious choice. It wasn't conscious, no. I would show up a couple of days later, and if there was people there, I'd photograph people. Mm -hmm. If there wasn't, then I'd have to photograph. Right, okay. I could have easily hung around or shown up earlier to photograph. I could, I could have had people in all my pictures. Yeah. But the yeah. reason I didn't show up early was because uh, it would just be police and police tape and police cars, and then police telling me to stay away from the scene mm. that I wanted to photograph, you know, two or three blocks back, which I didn't want to do. So... Um, I, had, I waited a day or two. Yeah. I mean, I, a few times I did show up early, like the, the murder in Oxford Street uh, on Boxing Day. I showed up on the same day because I just thought it was an interesting thing on Boxing Day, like yeah, the busiest shopping day of the, yeah. uh, you know, of the year. And the picture I had, you know, they closed Oxford Street on Boxing Day, and you, it's like pedestrian street, literally mm. millions of people going back and forth. And, and the picture I photographed is this one person looking at the, the murder site and there's a, the blur of people shopping in the background, you know? Because that's, you know, at the end of the day, most people didn't stop to look. They no. were on their way to buy something, you know? Yeah. So uh, I just thought was, that was interesting, you know? Yeah. I don't think I could have made that picture a couple of days later. And I knew that instinctively, you know? It was a rare event. And the police couldn't keep me back because it was such a crowded place. They couldn't rope off this three-square-block area of crime scene. It was impossible mm. on Boxing Day, you know? It would have been a uh, economic disaster for Britain. <laughs> <laughs> You know, if they had closed up Oxford Street on Boxing Day, you know. But that's what interested me about it, you know. Yeah. They couldn't do what they normally did, you know. So I could get very close to, to a scene right after it happened, you know. I think I was there like three hours after it happened. Three or four, you know. But yeah. the mixture of um, these, those sorts of images work really well together, don't they, I think? I um, hope so, yeah. 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 I hope so. I mean, 
I, they, I, they're all quiet pictures. There's no like loud pictures. No. I mean, there's no dead bodies in my pictures. It's not about. It's not. I'm not trying to do a Ouija. You know, people keep mentioning Ouija a lot. You know, but I wasn't interested in dead bodies. I was sort of interested in the the after yeah. after after the dead bodies were taken away and after the police left. What's there? You know, how people react to these places. You know, something happened. You know, I was intrigued that most of the people didn't. You know, there's lot, there's lots of pictures. There's nobody in the picture. There's mm. nothing. There's no flowers. There's no. Police. There's yeah, so no evidence. Really hunt for, for what There's always a clue in all of them. Yeah, there's there always is. a clue, yeah. uh, but it's you know it's it's surprising how many you know you show up and you, you think am I in the right place? Yeah. So you have to ask around, saying ask people, was there a murder here yesterday or two days ago? Oh yeah, yeah, there yeah there was police there. Yeah, well, uh, why? You were murdered? Really? And you know I had to do a little investigative reporting, you know, just to make sure it was the right place. Because a couple of times I made a mistake. I assumed there was something there, and in fact it was two doors down. Because I saw police tape in front of this house, I thought that must be where it happened. When in fact, it was just two doors down, you know. So I had to make sure every time, you know. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. And uh, you say it, it wasn't Ouija. Can you explain what you mean by that? Ouija was a photographer in the 30s and 40s who worked in New York, who went to went who went to crime scenes as quickly as possible, mm -hmm. as quickly as after it happened as he could. Sometimes he got there when the bodies were still on the ground, still bleeding, uh, um, and they're amazing photographs. They weren't meant to be art or whatever they are, but they're journalistically they're amazing pictures. That's the way most people photograph violence: go there as quickly after it happened, or be there when it happens. I didn't want to do that kind of work. You know. I mean, I could do that kind of work. You know, you know it, that kind of project is really more about the police in the end, if you really think about it, or people grieving like overtly, you know, crying and screaming and you know, oh my God. My husband should have been shot. I mean, it's a certain kind. It's the kind of picture you expect almost from that. It's know. more voyeuristic, isn't it? Uh, well, all photography is voyeuristic, you know. Yeah, yeah. But I, mean, I showed up. I, I showed up when people were grieving three days later, their loved one. Mm. That's voyeuristic. True. So I have to. I had to put it in a certain context that it was that I, it was more than voyeurism, you know. But yeah, you know, there is th there is a voyeuristic element in all photography. Yeah, you know? that's true. And y I think you have to be honest about it. I, I, I stop acting like it's not. You know, oh, I'm not. You know, I'm a fly on the wall. You know, I'm not trying to be voyeuristic. You know, of course you're trying to pe peer into people's lives mm. into a different experience. But you hopefully do it for the right reasons. I mean, I don't photograph naked people ever, ever. You know, I just I for first of all, I'm too shy, embarrassed. I end up being more embarrassed in the subject. You know, and I end up taking a bad picture. You know, uh, to me it's very voyeuristic people naked, you know? Mm -hmm. Yet I, I know some very beautiful photographs that are done that way, but I can't do them. Mm -hmm. I find it too voyeuristic. I can't do it. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't be a Ouija, I don't think. If I had the resources to be a Ouija, I don't think I could do it. Or I would do it, but I had a really good reason for it. You know? And I couldn't do it all the time. Ouija did it all the time, yeah. his whole career. I think it's, you, know, you end up being like an ambulance chaser. Paparazzis are voyeuristic. You know? yeah, yeah. They're like hunters. I, I can, I, I'm not interested in hunting. You know, hunting is a, a lot of luck. I don't want my photography to be luck. Of course, I, I do get lucky. Everybody gets lucky in photography. You know, it's a, it's a split second of a moment. You know, what I'm saying is, o over a whole life career, you don't want all your pictures to be. You were there. Yeah. And you're, you yeah. Know, you got lucky, and you know, you got there really quickly. I want my photographs to be more contemplative. Yeah. Know. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, I hope to be. You know. Oh, yeah, I think they are. Definitely. Oh, no, I mean, I'm, I take thousands of pictures every week, and 99% of them are failures, you know? That's part of the process, you yeah. know? <laughs> I mean, but I'm working toward getting good pictures every week, you know? Once in a while, I get, not I get lucky, but I, I work towards something. And taking pictures is note-taking to me, you know? I take lots of pictures to get their notes, mm -hmm. and then I make a decision what's going to be the picture that I, I, I communicate with.
Um, but I don't, I mean, a lot of amateur photographers are constantly disappointed with photography because they take hundreds of pictures every day and they're all bad. But actually, that's the way it's supposed to be. If you talk to any professional photographer, yeah. maybe with the exception of a landscape photographer shooting with an 8x10 camera, most photographers take lots of pictures. Professionals take lots of pictures, and very few of them are any good. You know, really, seriously. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like normal for us. Like we're constantly disappointed. My life is a, is a is a is a one constant disappointment <laughs> after another. You know, <laughs> so that's all it is. Like once in a while, oh, like, I what? I look, that's actually good. But it's it's it's. It's rare that I take a good picture, I mean, but that's that's the way it's supposed to be, you know. Mm -hmm. If pictures were easy to take, it'd be like there'd be no joy, you know, there'd be no fun to it, you know. Um, so beyond the book, do you intend to explore the project further? Any sort of spin-off, any, any sub-project? No, no spin-offs. I mean, no. one of the spin-offs I was thinking about was maybe photographing the the victims' families after the fact, mm -hmm. uh, like a couple of years later after do portraits. Mm -hmm. It's not a project I've completely dismissed. I just can't do that next. I gotta do something else. Mm. Uh, I got a couple of ideas. No puppies or, or flowers yet, but uh, I mean, I always got ideas. It's a matter of, you know, doing them. Yeah. You know? yeah. And some of them are just not feasible, you know? They're good ideas, but they're only really one picture. Yeah. I was afraid this project was gonna be not a good idea. It wasn't until I photographed a scene where Negus McLean got killed. There was a, just a, a row of teenagers oh, you know, yeah, lined yeah. up against a wall in front of flowers. Yeah. yeah. That picture was taken in April 2011, four months after I started the project. And I was very close to packing it in. I wasn't sure where I was going, you know. I mean, I was following my rules, sticking to my rules, but I wasn't getting this picture that sort of anchored the project, you know. Right. And when I took that picture, I mean, I'm not saying it's the best, it's not, it's not my favorite picture in the project, but it's the picture that I took that made me realize I was in the right direction because because I, I decided to, to give it to The Guardian and they mm. published it. And it got picked up by a bunch of other newspapers and magazines, and it you know, got a lot of press. And the feedback that that picture got made me realize I was in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know? I'm pretty sure that if I hadn't taken that picture, I might not have finished the project. You know? I might have gone oh, to something else. You know? yeah. Most projects I, do, I start don't finish because they're just not going anywhere, or I'm not capable of doing the photographs that I want to do. Mm -hmm. Lots of reasons. Or it's just not feasibly possible physically. You know? The trouble with photographers, they come up with, I have a great idea in the Antarctic. You know how much, it, I mean, I have a friend who actually photographs icebergs. To hire a photographer in the Arctic, uh, a helicopter in the Arctic, yeah. it's like $5,000 a minute or something. I'm serious, <laughs> like, can you imagine that? So how are you going to do a project about icebergs? It's a great project and a great idea, but physically to do it, you know? And if somebody's bankrolling you, then it's fine. Yeah, I want to do lots of stories about the environment, yeah. travel around the world, but God, I would be bankrupt, you know? I'd be yeah. stranded in Ecuador somewhere, you know, after three months of working on it, you know? It's like, it's just not physically possible. You know? I, I, I try to work within the resources I have. You know? So I think most of my project ideas that I got coming up, uh, if hopefully one of them will take off in the next year or two, or even sooner, are either in London or close to London. Mm -hmm. And I consider home to be Mexico, London, and that's it. Mm. But it's great because there's so much to tell about London which doesn't get told. So well, in fact, you know, all, uh, there's I'm making a figure up, but say there's 5,000 photojournalists in London. They all dream of going to Syria yeah. or Iraq or Afghanistan, you know, and none of them are like, oh, God, I'm stuck in London. And I used to think that way, in fairness. Don't get me wrong. I've just learned to express myself differently. But I realized that I could, I could probably spend the next 20 years of my life just photographing London. I would be aesthetically and intellectually happy with the output I yeah, put absolutely. out. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's just it takes a bit more... It takes a bit more thinking to figure out how you're going to photograph something like London in a way that isn't 
tourist year cliche. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, London, New York, and Paris would be the most photographed places in the world. So I have no interest in photographing Big Ben, for example. No, None exactly. interest at all, you know? Yeah. you know. I mean, I go to Paris, and I don't photograph the Eiffel Tower. It's easy to buy a postcard. Hey, look at that. You know, you <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. when, when I go to Paris, I just want to enjoy the food. I have no desire to take pictures at all, you know? I have no desire to go be Cartier Brisson, you know? Because I can just go buy a book <laughs> by Cartier Brisson. Yeah. Seriously, I mean, I, you know, when I take pictures, I try to take pictures that I, uh, I don't think I've seen before or at least express myself in a way that I haven't expressed myself before, you know, way, uh, way before. I don't, I don't really want to repeat things. I mean, all photography's been done. Every idea in photography's been done. My project, uh, there's Jim Goldberg, who photographed uh, these places in America where horrible things happened, where Lincoln got shot, where the Gettysburg Address happened, mm -hmm. where the Civil War battle sites, you know, where certain famous murders happened. Uh, he photographed these sites as well, you know? There was a pr uh, woman photographer, uh, a female photographer in New Orleans who photographed murder sites in New Orleans with a pinhole view camera. And they're beautiful pictures, but they look nothing like mine. No. And mine looked nothing like hers. In fact, when I first saw her pictures, I was kind of disappointed. I, I can't remember it on the top of the, my head, but, oh, no, somebody's already done it. And then people would email me, hey, I saw a murder project in Oregon about the guy who photographed people being killed in the forest. I go, oh, you know. <laughs> it's like, if I could have easily stopped doing what I was doing just because somebody else had done the idea. I'm not, I'm not interested in being original. It's a losing proposition, yeah, exactly. you know. Mm. Especially, imagine being a writer. I want to write about love. You know, if that stops you, because, oh, what do you mean, somebody's written about love before? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm not going to write a book, forget it, you know. That's, you can't work that way, you know. Yeah, yeah. Everything you do, if you do it properly, you're expressing yourself as an individual. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely, you know? yeah. You can go photograph everything Cartier Brisson did in the 30s, and you won't do the same pictures. No, One, because there's, be yours. there's cars parked at every inch mm. of the road, <laughs> yeah. you know. There's a public transport system, so nobody, very few people walk as much as they used to. Most people in Paris are walking or tourists gawking at Paris. Uh, you know what I mean? It's a different dynamic. Yeah, absolutely. So you'll make, yeah. you'll make new original pictures if you want to go be a street photographer. But so, yeah, it's, you know, so I forgot the question now. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Likewise, actually. Oh, <laughs> Spin-off, spin-off project. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, I have yeah. a couple ideas. I, uh, I won't tell you which one I'm doing next because I haven't started any of them. Right, okay. I'm, I'm hoping, I mean, I'm sure one of them, I mean, I have, in fact, in fairness, since I've done The Landscape of Murder, I think I've come up with better ideas than before I did this project. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I realize I've been thinking the wrong way, you know? I mean, a lot of things, ideas I express are now, basically, I learned uh, certain things about myself, about photography, that are gonna really help me, my, help my career as a photographer for the next 20 years. Because mm. if I hadn't done this project, I think I'd still be thinking a lot of the dumb ways, you know? God, I wish I could go to Syria, I wish I could be in Iraq, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And Places I've been to, in fairness, but I'm saying, you know, I, it's, I will be repeating myself. Mm. You know, I mean, I've done, if you go to my website, there's pictures from Palestine, there's pictures from Afghanistan. I've done that, and I'm very, I was blessed to do that, to have that experience, but I don't want to continue doing that. Yeah. Mm. If there's one thing I could w we would like to continue <coughs> is do something more about the environment, you mm. know, uh, like the Newberry Project, people trying to stop the destruction of the planet. Mm. Yeah. That intrigues me a lot. Yeah. yeah I would travel too. the world for that. Yeah. But again, that's really expensive. <laughs> yeah. if, I, if, they, if that was my idea, I would get nowhere. So I want to do things that are closer to home because I know they're feasible. That's the biggest reason. I want to do things that are feasible, you know. Well, that's one of the Instead things. Instead of dreaming away my life, oh, I wish I could be Sebastian Salgado, traveling around the world, you know. Yeah. If you think that way, you're never going to do anything. No, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think anybody out there who's listening to this, you should be more like Tony Olmos. <laughs> 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 Poor and London bound, you know, and stuck in the city they live in, you know. Yeah. I think it's actually end up being more productive that way. Yeah, so yeah I agree. 
could you recommend an exhibition or a book that you've read recently which has inspired you? And <sighs> Jeez, I could Or do you have an exhibition that you're, you've got in your mind to see next? What's the next thing? Well, you know, I don't just see photography exhibitions. I went to see Paul Klee's uh, the exhibition by the painter in oh, uh, Tate yeah. Modern. That was very interesting. Right, okay. I didn't like it, by the way, but <laughs> it was very thought-provoking. Uh -huh. there, there was a room in the Tate Modern by the photographer Graciela Chabidi, the Mexican photographer. Uh, I love her work, but I didn't like the show. Right. There is a the pre-Pictet exhibition at yeah. the Somerset House. It's a small room, but the pictures are gorgeous, especially Simon Norfolk's pictures are right, amazing. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, I've got to go and see that. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Um, there's always good stuff. You know, by the time this goes out, there'll be something new, you know? Yeah, that's true. London is um, great for that. Yeah, there's, there's millions of good photo books, mm. you know? There's, there's not a shortage of good photography. That's, that's not a problem. Yeah. You just got to be curious, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's more in Paris. I mean, I, I get pissed off with London that sh there should be more for a city of its size. Yeah. yeah. That's true. I say it's great, but I think for the city of its size, it, it does lack, especially in photography, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And New York is also amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I think, well, maybe it's not the Laxon photography, maybe the Laxon photography that I like, the more reportage, documentary, uh, serious. Uh, maybe there's a lot of flowers out there. Yeah, there. perhaps that's Yeah, that's contemporary art. Well, you know, but uh, something, no, no, but something. <laughs> I like contemporary art. I tell you something, <laughs> I, you know what? If you, sometimes the best way to know what's going on in the world, say in 1850, is not to read a history book, to, to read a novel. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Art has its place in the whole context of things, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I don't I don't I don't think documentary photography is a the better photography. I have my own taste obviously, but mm -hmm. I mean the most one of the most influential people in my life as a photographer was Edward Weston. And not so much his pictures, which are beautiful, amazing, but his day books. If anybody reads his diaries, his day books, his note taking, it's amazing. Oh wow, okay. You know, because it, the way he intellectualizes things, the way he thinks about things, yeah. he puts it on paper, you know. Yeah. It's amazing, you know. It's like, oh, that's what photographers think. I need to think like that. Yeah. His notebooks are not about, oh, I was using a 300 millimeter lens and <laughs> wow, my picture was so sharp. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about, you know, he talks about amazing things, you know. Because it's very hard to, to write about photography. It is, yeah. In fact, to, in fact, you know, if people have to contextualize a photograph too much, it sort of defeats the purpose. The reason a photograph works so well, because it's not, uh, it's not written. It's not a written language. It's a different language. Mm. And you know, if I start here sitting here trying to explain that different language, I, I end up ruining it for everybody. Just look at them and then hopefully you'll enjoy them or get something out of them. Mm. You know? Yeah, there's tons of stuff in London. You should see art. Yeah, I'm a great believer in, in yeah, exactly, absorbing as much as you can. I'm not just thinking, I like documentary photography, so that's all I'm going to look Listen, at. Listen, if you. Everything influences. If you want to yeah. be a good photographer, uh, you should go to the National Gallery and look at the Dutch paintings. Yeah, the rooms yeah. are full of Dutch paintings. There's like four or five rooms just full of Dutch paintings from the 16th and 17th century. You'll learn more about composition and how to use light from those those that those rooms than most photo books out there. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Because you can't teach composition. You can't teach having a respect or a, a feeling for light. You know, unless you consume a lot of art. Mm. You know? And all kinds of art. All kinds of yeah. art. Yeah. yeah. Photography, cinema paintings, everybody should read a lot, you know, even watch good television, you know, because people say, oh, you should read more books. Well, you know, most books are crap, <laughs> you know, most television is crap, most photography is crap, most painting is crap, most movies are crap. You just consume good stuff, you know. <laughs> yep. yeah. One last question before we wrap up. Can you recommend a photographer whose work you admire and who is documenting stories on their doorstep? Well, Local I, mean, I like a lot, I mean, I, I like uh, Neil McDermott's Crossing Paths project a lot. 
I don't know if you guys heard of it. You look it up, Niall McDermott, Crossing Paths. He's about to do a book. It's an amazing book. Um, What's that about? He, he, he traveled the whole country doing portraits. Oh, right. And that sounds like a really easy thing to do, but actually really hard work. Yeah. But the thing is, his photographs are going to mean they're amazing pictures now, but I can't imagine what they're going to be like in 50 years. They're going to be an amazing record of Britain. Mm. He, he, he went to around the whole country. They're great photographs. There's Kai Wiedenhofer's. Uh, he's a German photographer. He did a book called The Wall. It just came out. Okay. That's a really amazing piece of work. He, he's a reportage photographer, mm -hmm. but he uses panoramic landscapes to, to do what he does. Oh, yeah. Amazing. He went around the whole world photographing walls and borders, and it's beautiful. Oh. Beautiful. And it's not an original idea. No. We, I come from Mexico, and I grew up in the U.S.-Mexican border. I've seen lots of pictures of borders and mm -hmm. walls. Yeah. And you look at his work, which is not original at all in concept, but the way he executes it, it's mm -hmm. amazing. Yeah. Yeah, really beautiful. I mean, you know, there's, you know, I always recommend Simon Norfolk, you know, who's an amazing photographer who works with large format, yeah. you know, yeah. photographs. Um, Peter Dench, great photographer. Um, who else? Well, I could stay here all day. And <laughs> but in terms of doing local projects, you know, promoting that, that idea that there is so much on your doorstep that you could document, but so many people disappear off to far-flung places around the world. Well, you know, I just mentioned Kai Wiedenhofer and Simon Norfolk. They go to far-flung places, but they do it so intelligently in a different way that I think it's, it's worth it, you know? Yeah. I'm talking, when I say those things, I'm talking about myself more than anything. Mm. I'm not really criticizing photographers. You know, I'm, uh, you know, somebody might give me an assignment tomorrow to go photograph Zambia for three months, and I would go, I'll go, yeah, let's go. <laughs> you know, yeah. so I, you know, I'm not, uh, not saying that I'm never gonna s take pictures outside of London again. No, of course not. You know, I would love to. I love traveling. I mean, it's one of the benefits of being a photographer is that you, you get to consume the world. Uh, you get this f amazing passport to see the world because you have a camera on your neck. I mean, I knock on people's doors and say, hi, can I come in? I want to take your picture. Yeah, I, mean, I can't imagine somebody coming to my door in North London. Yeah. Hi, I'm a Bangladeshi photographer photographing Mexicans living in London. I want to, can I hang out with you for a couple of weeks? I would go, no, go away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know, that's but people don't tell me to go away. They, they say yes. You know? yeah, yeah. I'm sure if the guy said it right, I'm sure I'd say yes too, you know. <laughs> yeah, okay, you can step in, sleep in the spare bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know. It's an incredible thing, you know. But people let me into their lives because I have a camera, you know. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's a great privilege. And I, I'm aware of that privilege, so I don't, I don't take it for granted ever. Mm. So. Thank yeah. you very much for your time. Thanks for listening to the Documentary Photography Review podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed our conversation with Antonio Olmos. You can find Antonio's work at antoniolmos.com. The links to the artists and exhibitions mentioned in this podcast will be listed in the show notes, available at documentaryphotoreview.com forward slash podcasts. Antonio's newly published book, The Landscape of Murder, is available through Dowie Lewis Publishing at dowielewis.com. We'll have the full link for this in the show notes, and I highly recommend having a look at this book. It's a great collection of images, and as I'm sure you've gathered from the interview, a really interesting project. These podcasts are released on the 1st and 15th of every month, and we've got some great photographers lined up. So to make sure you don't miss out, you can subscribe on iTunes. If you don't use iTunes, then they are available to download from the Documentary Photography Review website. And we are working on making sure the podcasts are available on as many platforms as possible. If you or anyone you know are a documentary photographer working on a local story where you live or where you are from, and you'd like to be featured in the podcast series, then do get in touch with us via email at chris at documentaryphotoreview.com. If you would like to feature your work on the website, 
then again, please email us. For the website, the work doesn't need to be a local story, and it can be about any subject, it just needs to be documentary in nature. Finally, do spread the word and share these podcasts with anyone you think might be interested, and do consider leaving a comment or review via iTunes. These are very welcome. Take care, thanks again for listening, until next time.